I'm John Gibbons and welcome to Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. My guest this week is Anthony Peake, who is a British author whose work focuses on near-death experience, deja vu and the nature of reality. Anthony has suggested a different explanation as to what happens to human consciousness at the point of death. This theory, which he terms cheating the ferryman, was first published in the International Journal of Near-Death Studies in 2004 and later described in his book, Is There Life After Death? The theory involves Peake's interpretation of the latest theories of quantum mechanics, neurology and consciousness studies and concludes that at the point of death, the dying person is presented with a literal minute-by-minute recreation of their life in real time from their subjective viewpoint. This inwardly generated reality is virtually indistinguishable from the real thing. Anthony, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you, John? I'm absolutely fantastic. And I'm a little bit mind-blown, actually, Anthony, because just before we came on air... Uh, we were speaking, <laughs> and we had an incident with our dryers and our laundry, which... There's absolutely no answer to that, really, is there, unless you explain a little bit more. <laughs> well, it, it's quite amazing. What happened, for anybody listening and wondering, am I completely off my rocker now, is Anthony came on the phone and he said, John, can we hang on a couple of minutes because I'm just waiting for my dryer to spin out, and it's very, very loud and it'll cause interference. And I mean, literally, I had been a couple of minutes late calling Anthony for the very same reason I was waiting on my dryer in my house, which is pretty near the studio here, to spin out as well. And it was just one of those moments of synchronicity that I thought, yeah, this is going to be a really good interview. Yes, follow the signs, follow the synchronicities, and then you know you're probably in the right direction. Absolutely. And Anthony, for those who mightn't be familiar with your work to date, can you give us a little bit of background where you come from and what it is you have done in the past up to now? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm I'm a writer based over here in the UK, um, at the moment based in the southeast of England. But effectively, most of my writing was uh, was done up in the northwest of England in the in the Liverpool area, uh, and that is in fact where my origin is. Um, by background, um, I suppose one could call me, if anything, a sociologist in the sense that's the degree I took. Um, and I've always been interested in um, what would be termed fringe phenomenon, in the sense ever since. I was probably about eight or nine years of age. Uh, I've been intrigued, as most children are, you know, I became intrigued in the UFO phenomenon uh, and ghosts and such like. But I took a a very technical interest in it and um, I began reading a part work, this is a million years ago, this is in the late 1960s, um, called Man, Myth and Magic which um, was a fairly fairly intellectually based discussion about the anthropology uh, of belief, uh, about religious belief, philosophical beliefs and such like. And from then onwards, I I was fascinated by by the uh, human consciousness, I suppose. What is it about human consciousness? How does it react to reality? And I carried that through my university career and I specialized in sociology of religion. Uh, which gave me the opportunity to look into belief systems around the world in terms of how the dynamic of belief. Um, I'm particularly interested in things such as um, millenarian movements who believe the world is about to come to an end and exactly how when the world doesn't come to an end they deal with the term which is called cognitive dissonance and such like. So I carried that forward. Now I also have had a career as a 
working in management in various companies across the UK as well. But my interest had always continued, and um, I was I had it was quite curious really. Um, Around about 2000, um, I, I had just finished uh, um, doing some work um, and I was in the fortunate position that I, I was secure enough financially to take a year out um, and I decided I would do what I'd always planned to do, which is write a book. Yeah. Um, and it was one of these things, we all have this urge, don't we, to write a book and I was no different to anybody else. I mean, I'd, I'd written a couple of um, short stories in the past, and I'd written one novel, which I'd never tried to pursue to get published in any way at all. But this time around, it felt different. I just felt that I was sufficiently motivated to make something happen. But I didn't know what I wanted, even wanted to write about. Literally, I had no, um, no idea where I was going to go with the book. I didn't have a publisher or anything else. It was just an urge. And um, I started... It was quite curious as to how the whole thing kicked off because um, I, was I was living in Horsham in West Sussex at the time and I literally switched the computer on, loaded up Word and I had the white screen in front of me thinking, right, what I'm going to write about. And as most writers know, that is the most terrifying thing we can have, the white screen. <laughs> yeah. um, and I just sat there for a few moments and then something rather peculiar happened uh, in that I started to get tingling in the, the, the ends of my fingers and in my lips. And I realized what was happening was it was something I'd known for many years. It's, it's a, a pre, it's an aura sensation of classic migraine. And in fact, I, I, you know, I've had migraine since, since childhood. And so I knew that I was going to have a migraine headache at some time in the future because the aura is, is a precursor, a pre-warning to the fact that you're going to have a migraine attack. Right. Um, now, my auras normally consisted of, of um, an inability to speak properly because the words seem to not link through together as well as they should do. I also get what's called a scotoma, which is a kind of whiteout. I go partially blind. I mean, it's, it's traumatic when it first happens, but you know it's going to go away. And I see castellations and zigzags in my eye line. But something else very peculiar happened because I suddenly had the overwhelming, and I mean overwhelming sensation that I had sat in front of that computer, looking at that screen, looking at um, Greenfinch Way in Horsham out through my study window before. And it was the most profound sensation. It was, it was a deja vu, but it was an uber deja vu. It was a profound feeling of recognition. When the, the aura dissipated, I realized what I needed to write a book about. I wanted to write about deja vu, so I immediately went onto the web and started looking up all I could, the information and finding book links and everything else to, to the deja vu sensation. Yeah. And I was intrigued to find that really um, it was one of, it's one of these phenomena that is so common, uh, somewhere in the region of 70% of, of, of people experience it at least once in their life, that it's almost become you know, sort of one of these kind of weird phenomenon that is not weird because it's so common. Right, yeah. And I started to look at various explanations of neurological explanations for it. And I came across an incredible paper written by a guy called Dr. Arthur Funkhauser, who is an American Jungian analyst who lives in Bern in Switzerland, called The Dream Theory of Deja Vu. And this fascinated me because in the paper... Art suggests, and Art is now a close friend of mine. I mean, I've met him a few times. Um, we met up in Switzerland uh, 18 months ago. Yeah. In fact, 
he's literally just sent a message to me on Facebook literally five minutes ago. So clearly there's another synchronicity. Oh, there you go. But art, art's paper, art's great dream theory of deja vu is phenomenal. And what he suggests is that when you have a deja vu sensation, what has happened is that you have recently dreamed the event you're living in. Now, you know, it is rather similar, isn't it, in the sense that when we have dreams, we, we have flashbacks to the dreams. When we wake up, the dream kind of disappears like a snowball in a furnace. It just goes. Yeah. Remember, that's what it's saying, and it goes. But as you go through the day, you'll suddenly get flashbacks and recollections of the dream. And you think, oh, that's what I dreamt about last night. Art says the deja vu sensation is like that. It's you start to live the dream you have just dreamt, and there's the sudden recognition of the fact that you've at some indeterminate time in your past, mm -hmm. you've done this before. Now, when I contacted Art about this, I, I said to him, this is an intriguing idea you have. Now, Art, Art by background, it's Dr. Arthur Funkhauser, and his actual doctorate is in physics. So he's, he's a physicist. Right. And I said, well, the major problem you have with your hypothesis, which, which is brilliant and I really like it, is that by implication you are suggesting that we are all precognitive. And that every person who ever has a deja vu sensation is precognitive. Because the implication is, if I have had a dream and I then start living the events of the dream I have had previously, that is absolute recognition. And I said, so in which case you have to explain a mechanism whereby my subconscious can monitor the future, the future events of my own life and create a dream out of them, which I then experience. And we got into quite a discussion about this, and this is where I decided to take the book, because I wanted to see if there was evidence that déjà vu is in fact a precognition, and that we we are precognizing a series of events. Now, technically, déjà vu is the wrong term. Déjà vu means already seen. Uh, déjà vécu, already lived, is the more accurate phrase that we should use on this. Okay. Because what I then found was, and this intrigued me, was that déjà vu sensations are known to be part of the pre-seizure aura of, of people who have migraine. And it's to, do with, it's to do with the neurology in the brain. It's to do with a particular neurotransmitter that is released just before um, a, a migraine attack. It's a, it's a neurotransmitter in the brain called glutamate. Now, I started looking up on glutamate, and I was enthralled to discover that glutamate manifests itself at various times in the life, very in our lives, very severely. It manifests itself during times of extreme stress. And one of the other manifestations of glutamate is it slows down our perception of time. So, in other words, you know, when you've had an accident, Time seems to suddenly slow down. Yeah. In fact, a lady recently emailed me where she was telling me she fell off her horse. And she said it took her two or three hours to fall off the horse. It literally was, was a second. But she said it felt like three hours as she was falling off the horse. Uh, it happens to skydivers. It happens to mountaineers. But what else happens is it also manifests itself at a point in life that we all live through, or effectively don't live through, death. Because apparently glutamate, there's something called a glutamate flood that takes place just before death. It's to do with the way the brain reacts to dying. Right. Now, of course, we all know about the phenomenon NDE, near-death experience. Yeah. Now, if you read the reports on near-death experience, what do you find? People turn around and say that time slows down for them. They have a sensation of going through a tunnel. 
they have something else which is of profound significance to me and was in writing of my first book, which is they claim that their life flashed before their eyes. It's one of the, the typologies that is used. I mean, there's something called the Grayson scale, which is used. In fact, Professor Bruce Grayson is a consultant psychiatrist at uh, the University of Virginia. In fact, Bruce wrote the foreword of my first book, Is the Life After Death? So there's a tie in here. But Bruce and his associates use this kind of typology. When somebody reports a near-death experience in, in clinical circumstances, they go through a list of the things that people report and have reported in the past. And one of them is this life flashing before my eyes. It's technically known as the panoramic life review. And again, intriguingly, it is more likely, you're more likely to have a panoramic life review when death, when you're facing death and it's a surprise. It's a surprise, but you have time to isolate it. For instance, again, I use the site of skydivers. Yeah. Um, mountaineers have it a lot when they fall off a cliff or they fall off a, a mountainside. And if they survive, the vast majority of them will report this super fast, seeing their whole life flash before their eyes with particular incidents picked out. I then started thinking about this and I thought, I wonder if there is any mechanism in the brain that can, can, can show that we record our life experiences. Because effectively, if my life flashes before my eyes at the point of death, it has to be a recording. Because how else can it happen? You know, I, you know, I can't, I cannot at the moment remember things that incidents that happened in my childhood. I have what's called charged memories, which are particular incidents where we all have. You know, you look back on your childhood and you will have a particular memory of a particular incident, which is even, even not of significance, but you remember it. Yeah. These are called charged memories. A lady called Esther Solomon wrote a book on this in the 1950s. And charged memories are quite intriguing. I believe that charged memories are because we record all our life. It's recorded and it's, it's, it's ingrained within the brain holographically. Okay. That's now, very interesting, certain... Anthony, because there are a number of people, um, David Icke being one of them, who would advocate the view that the body is merely a computer and a device for decoding and storing information. So that would kind of tie in with what you're saying then. Well, some of the later work I do goes further than that, which we can touch upon, because um, I, 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 you know, I'm very much of that ilk. Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the reality itself is a computer program, that we are existing within a computer program. In fact, we are a computer program perceiving a computer program. Uh, in fact, it all works holographically. We are a hologram effectively perce uh, perceiving a, an external hologram. But we can touch upon, because the thing I do in all my books is I do the science. I believe that extraordinary proofs, uh, extraordinary statements need extraordinary proofs, which is what I do. So if you read any of my books, you'll find everything I say is referenced right back to original source material. Excellent. But going back to the, the, the concept of memory, if the memory is recording, there's a recording mechanism taking place, there will be times when possibly that recording mechanism, for want of a better term, is supersaturated. I've in the past used the analogy of, um, uh, I don't know, of, of VCR recording of something that happens and the, the, the actual the tape the actual chemicals on the tape, for some reason, are more supersaturated at that point, which makes that more vivid. Yeah. Okay. Now, the recording, I, in my first book, I do a lot of research into the mechanism by which the brain can encode recordings. 
Now, there's a guy called Carl Pribram, um, who was a professor, of, or still is a professor of psychology at Georgetown University. And Pribram came to the conclusion that memory works holographically. This is why they've never been able to find what they call the enneagram, the, the location of memory within the brain. They know the areas that memory is processed. It, it, it's, it's located around the hippocampus and the temporal lobes. But what they don't know is where memory is, is, is stored. Okay. Right. Now, what Pribram has suggested is it's stored across the brain. It's stored holographically. In which case, as you probably know, if you take a holographic image and you, and, uh, and you, 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 you break it down into its compartments, it's not like a jigsaw puzzle. You don't get um, a, a, a section of the whole picture if you break a holographic image. Yeah. What you get is a denuded version of the whole picture. In other words, a hologram literally contains the whole. Everything is, the whole is contained within the parts. It, it's almost like a fractal in terms of this. Yeah. So memory is encoded in the brain using holographic techniques, which means effectively, and if you look at the statistics and how the brain can function, there is easy enough neurological pathways and connections between the cells of the brains, particularly things called the glial cells. Um, there are enough interfaces between the neurons of the brain and the synapses of the brain to, con to encode digitally every single event of a person's life. By every single event, I mean literally everything. I mean every sensation, every thought you had, every physical sensation you had at the time, the stomach pain you had, the, the, the feeling of the, the pressure as you're sitting in a chair, the sounds you hear and everything. It's all encoded in there. So we're almost in the realm of the infinite here. We are. Now, the encoding in my latest books, I'm saying this encoding, in fact, exists in something called the zero-point field. Uh, and in fact, in my next book, I'm dealing with the mechanism by which information from the zero point field can be uploaded into structures in the brain called the microbecular cortex, uh, the microbecular um, cortex. Um, it's kind of a, a mixture of, of filaments in the brain that sit within the microtubules of the brain, which sits within the neurons of the brain. And this and information can be drawn up. Um, it's a form of light that's drawn up from the, the zero-point field, which we can touch upon later if we wish. Mm -hmm. But suffice to say at the moment, going back to the idea of how we then um, we can be precognitive, is that I believe in a real death experience, life doesn't pass flash in front of your eyes. You literally fall out of time, as you do when you have an accident, as you do when you wake up in the morning, the alarm clock goes off and you put it on snooze, you have a whole dream. It's because time is subjective. And as you know, in my book, The Labyrinth of Time, I do, I do the background and the logic and the rationale yeah. of why, how this model can work. So again, I've now written books on each of the themes of my first book. I've now written a whole book on to actually give the background data and information. So time is, 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 a, is a subjective construct. We fall out of time at the point of death. In doing so, what then happens is the memories that are encoded in the brain, literally, you fall into them and you exist in a matrix-like holographic recreation of your life from the moment of your birth, which is absolutely believable. It's three-dimensional because you're, it's, 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 it's the brain itself is using its normal brain processes to create reality. As a little bit of a side here, most people assume that the external world they look at is, is out there. 
In other words, what's happening is that your eyes are processing literally the visual, your eyes process the visual image and your brain processes what's on the back of your eye. It doesn't. The brain processes an image, for instance, the image on the back of your retina is, is the size of a postage stamp, inverted and warped. Your brain creates from that image a three-dimensional recreation of reality, and a lot of it it makes up. And the evidence for this is absolutely clear. If your listeners now close one eye and just look at the world around you, so you're doing something very peculiar. Because what you're doing is you should see at the back of your eye something called the blind spot. It's where the optic nerve leaves the back of the eye. Yeah. You have a blind spot. The brain fills in the information from the information around where the blind spot is to give you a total feeling of vision. It creates it. The, the, the scientists and the, neuro, the neurologists and the consciousness studies people have a term for this, this belief that reality as we perceive is as it really is. It's called naive realism because they know it's not. The brain inwardly creates reality for us from the information it receives through the senses. It's an internally generated model. We know this as well because we actually lag behind reality by about 0.5 of a second. There's been a series of experiments that prove this absolutely. We are at 0.5 of a second behind what is happening outside. And that in itself is absolutely fascinating because that's enough to spark a question or two in anybody. Oh, absolutely, because you suddenly, and it's, it's something we, a lot of people never reflect upon, is the idea that this world that we perceive is, is, is an inwardly generated well, illusion is the wrong term because it's not an illusion it is a, an internal reality mm -hmm. now if you spin this off into quantum physics we have something called wave particle duality and put simply this means effectively that a particle uh, for instance a photon of light is a wave until it's observed or measured by a sentient being and when it is observed it changes from a wave of potentiality a statistical wave into a point particle that has existence in three-dimensional reality. The moment the person looks away or the measurement is taken off the photon, it goes back into being a wave. Absolute fact. This, this, is, this is absolute pure science. You know, absolute pure science. On top of that, they found that if you put a measuring device on something called the twin slit experiment, the photons know that the, 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 the experiment is going to be done and they amend their behavior depending upon whether they're going to be measured or not. Which means the, the photons know they're being observed. Okay. On top of this, we also know that reality itself, what we also have found out is a guy called Anton Zeilinger at the University of Vienna. And again, I always say to people, look this up on the web. Don't take my word for it. And Professor Anton Zeilinger has been working with what's called um, superposition of particles. And he has been able to prove that this weird twin slit being a particle and a wave is not fo just photons. He's been doing it with molecules, large molecules. He did it with something called uh, Buckminster Fullerene, a buckyball. This is a huge molecule that has 60 atoms in it. This 60 atom molecule was a wave, was observed and became a molecule, was non-observed and went back to being a wave. Molecules are what makes up the reality we perceive. Mm. Fact, everything we have around us is made up of molecules. This suddenly makes reality an incredibly strange place. Now, 
If this is the case then, the reality is processed, it is, it is encoded in the brain holographically, so you're dying. You're starting to live your life again in a three-dimensional recreation of your life that you can't tell from reality because in fact it is just as real as this reality. As you're living this life again, there will be occasions when you'll suddenly, part of you will go, I've done this before. That recognition, the deja sensation, there are various hypotheses and theories of the deja vu sensation. Something called the optical pathways hypothesis of a guy called Robert Efron in 1963 suggested the explanation was that literally the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain processes information a split second before the dominant hemisphere of the brain and we get a double, in, double giving of information. Subconsciously, we've already seen it. Yeah. And then we see it consciously and we have this feeling of paramnesia, this idea that you're seeing something twice that you've seen it before. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work anymore. There's been work done by somebody called Akira O'Connor at the University of Leeds. There is an actual group of people in the University of Leeds under a guy called Chris Moulon, Professor Chris Moulon, who are doing research in, into the deja vu sensations. And they found that people who are born blind or blind people have deja senti already heard. In other words, they will hear something and hear it again, or they will feel something, and a few seconds later, they will feel it again. One young lad felt the side of his zip on his, on his, on his, on his jacket, and then a few seconds later, he'd taken his hand away, and he felt the zip on his fingertips. The neurological pathways for, feel, for sense, for feeling, and for hearing are completely and utterly different to the eyes. Right. It doesn't get processed in the same way. So the visual pathways theory is gone. Okay. So deja vu is back to being a mystery. I think what's happening is literally you are doing what you think you're doing. You're remembering. You're remembering your past life. But the second time round when you're living your life, there is a part of you that remembers the fact you've lived your life before. And I call this part of you the daemon. It's for want of a better term, your higher self, your spirit guide, your guardian angel. Call it whatever you will. Um, it has been known, this, this particular manifestation of consciousness has been known since oh, thousands of years. You look at all the Gnostic traditions mm -hmm. from the Kabbalah, Sufism, to Gnostic Christianity. They all have this concept of this idea of the higher self that carries us through our lives. The ancient Romans called it the genius. This is something that we are given at the point of our birth that knows our lives and it guides us and it warns us about future events. This is what I think is happening when you have a deja vu sensation. This is what's happening when you see a synchronicity. Synchronicities are actual recognition warnings of the fact that reality isn't quite what it seems. Now, your listeners out there will turn around and say, hold on a minute, you said I'm living within a recording of my life. If I'm living in a recording of my life and I die at a certain point, if my daemon warns me about this event and saves my life, this means that the recording has changed, doesn't it? Because it has to be. Mm. My argument for this is there's a complete and utter rational explanation for this. There are two hypotheses in quantum physics that are, are of relevance here. The first one is called the, the Everett's Many Worlds Interpretation of Particle Physics, suggested in 1957 by a guy called Hugh Everett III, it was part of his PhD thesis. And in this, he was trying to get over something 
there has been a mystery within quantum physics since the 1930s. It's called the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment. Now, without going into any great detail about this, what effectively this suggests is that, you know, I was saying before about subatomic particles yep. react when they're observed. If they're not observed, they're in a something called superposition. So, in other words, if you have a subatomic particle that has a 50% chance of decaying or not in a given time period, say an hour, if that particle is unobserved for that hour, according to something called the Copenhagen interpretation, it is no, it is both. It has both um, disappeared and not disappeared at the same time. Erwin Schrödinger said, if you put a cat in a box and it's not observed, and you know that in that hour that cat may die or not die, mm. it means if the cat is not observed, it's both alive and dead at the same time in the box. Okay, Schrödinger's cat. It's almost like that uh, first-year psychology question that everybody seems to be asked: if a tree falls in the wood and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? Exactly. It's the idea of perception. And of course, the argument is that no, it isn't, because sound sound is actually literally um, sound waves moving through the air, which actually vibrates in the drum of the eardrum. So therefore, sound does not exist in the external world as we perceive it. Exactly. Neither does, neither does color. So it you must know, be perceived to exist. Yes. As, as Descartes said, you know, to be perceived is to, to exist. Now, but it comes back to so this cat is not alive or dead in the box. If it's closed, and uh, the argument goes that can a cat be alive or dead at the same time? Now, what Hugh Everett III said was um, this whole idea that the, the wave function is collapsed by the axis of observation is ridiculous. And he said what happens is when the box is opened, there are effectively two cats, one that's alive and one that's dead. And in fact, there are then two observers, one observer that observed a live cat and one observer that observed a dead cat. This became known as the many worlds interpretation, which suggests that the universe splits into copies of itself hundreds of times a second, thousands of times a second. Mm. So there are trillions and trillions of universes, trillions and trillions of versions of, of John Gibbons and Anthony Peake having this conversation. All this information, I argue, is encoded into the zero point field because, and this is fascinating, three or four years ago, Stephen Hawking and an associate of his called um, Hertog, Dennis Hertog wrote a paper and this again is Stephen Hawking you know so this is not he's not some new age guru this is Stephen Hawking and he has he has a he has a hypothesis whereby he says that everything that can happen is out there in potentiality it's encoded as a potential within the fabric of the universe by observing it, we bring that particular reality into existence rather than another reality. However, the other realities still exist. Now, think about this as a first-person computer game. Imagine that the zero-point field is a DVD. Okay? A DVD game. Yeah. CD. In a CD-ROM, when you play a game like Myst or... or, or um, um, uh, Tomb Raider or whatever every decision that you make when you're playing the game as the game player and every outcome of every decision is already encoded digitally on the computer or on the, the, the hard drive yeah. or on the CD-ROM this is what life is life is a computer program encoded in the computer program which is encoded in something called the zero point field which is known mystic by mystics as the akashic record 
And again, in my books, I do the science of this. I'm actually talking at the moment to, the, to a guy called Professor... Um, uh, I can't think of his name now. It'll come back to me, but there's, there's, a, there's a guy in America that has actually got a patent for drawing up energy from this zero-point field. Okay. Wow. Now, so it means that the energy is encoded in the zero-point field. That's the hard drive of life. And I believe the encoding within it is in our DNA. The DNA itself, a DNA is a crystal. DNA can actually process light. DNA can process electromagnetic radiation drawn up. Within each cell of the body, within each nucleus of the body, is a DNA strand. Each of these DNA strands can encode information. Not just information of how we develop and how we grow, but also information from the zero point field. I was dazzled to realize, do you know, that, it, that each DNA strand that's, that's, that's actually in the nucleus of each one of our cells, with the exception of our blood cells, if you took it out and, and put it out in a, in a, in a, in a, in a string line, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's, it's two yards long. It's six foot long, but it's only 15 atoms thick. It's like your finger thickness running from Los Angeles to Paris. That's if almost you, incomprehensible. Right. Now, if you then calculate that and take every strand of DNA that's in your body and you run it out and you link them all together, it would go around the world, I think, something like five million times. Good Lord. It would go from here to Jupiter multiple times. This is how much DNA is in your body. And each DNA rung, there are rungs that actually link the two sides of the helix. Each one of these contain information. They can upload information. DNA is not just the encoding of the genome. It is far greater than this. And it symbolizes itself. It symbolizes itself in dreams of snakes, two snakes. In fact, people who take dimethyltryptamine, DMT, yep. and people who take ayahuasca continually have dreams involving snakes. In fact, in my next book, I'm going to be citing a lot of the work by a guy called Jeremy Narby who's written a book called The Cosmic Serpent, DNA and the Origins of Knowledge. I'm taking Narby's ideas far further than anybody's ever done. Far, far further than anybody has done at the moment. But suffice to say, at the moment, going back to the hypothesis, so you're living your life again. So this is what happens. The daemon changes it by giving you a warning. Yeah. You have an inkling that something's wrong. It flicks you into an alternate universe. It collapses the wave function of another variation. Your game player is your daemon. Imagine a scenario that you're living, you are what's called an Eidolon, you are the being on the screen, you're the Lara Croft. Your daemon is the game player. Your daemon remembers the last time the game was played. So it runs you down a particular corridor and it avoids the monster this time right, and yeah. sends you off in a different direction. Okay, This is what the daemon does. The difference is that you, when you're playing a game like this, you can move the sprite in various directions. The daemon can't. The daemon can't because the daemon is located in the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain. Therefore, the daemon can't. There's lots of things the daemon cannot do. It's like it's more analogous with the daemon being a passenger in a car. You're the driver. The Eidolon, the everyday person, is the driver. The daemon is the, the guy sitting in the next seat. Right. Who can, who can turn around to you and say, you should turn down this side road now. But what it can't do, it can't turn the wheel. It can't accelerate. All it can do is warn you. And it depends on how much the doors of perception are open in your brain as to whether your daemon can speak to you, 
whether your daemon can manipulate you by giving you hints or feelings, whether it can actually warn you in dreams. This is how people have precognitive dreams. This is pe how people have warning dreams. Okay? So there you are living this life in this illusion or hallucination, whatever we want to term it, but it is more real or it's just as real as this life. At the end of that one, you then live the life again and again and again and again as you do in a computer game. So is, is it an infinite loop then, Anthony? It is. It's called the eternal recurrence or the eternal return. Friedrich Nietzsche used this term. Peter Ospensky, the Russian philosopher, used this term. The eternal return and the eternal recurrence has gone back through history. A guy called um, Merhil Eliad wrote an amazing book called The Eternal Return. This is a known phenomenon. It's mentioned in books. Your Irish writers love it. In my book, The Labyrinth of Time, I cite, if you read um, James Joyce's um, Finnegan's Wake, mm. the last line of Finnegan's Wake links to the first line of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, that's right. It's a circle. Finn, again, is a pun. The hero is Finn, who's the guy that's died. But he comes to life again. Finn, again. And again, Finn, again, awake. So it's Finn, awake, again. Very, very clever. Then you have things like the third policeman, Flan O'Brien. In the third policeman, you find that these guys in the third policeman are living in hell and they're living their lives over and over again. Mm. Finally, you get the concept in um, uh, Waiting for Godot, Samuel Beckett, to give birth astride a grave. And if you list, if you, if you, the three acts of um, the play actually repeat themselves with different characters doing different things, but the actual story of each of the, the lines are the same. Yeah. This is, again, a source. It's a source of, of, of great inspiration for people. Well, I found inspiration in it myself, um, having read your book, because uh, one of my most recent tracks is a collaboration I did with uh, DJ from Northern Ireland, DJ Mog, and the track is called Anello, which is actually the, uh, the Italian for loop or cycle. And we pretty much did the same thing with the track. So if you, for example, if you loop the track seamlessly, you will actually get a continuing track. So it, it repeats, repeats without any kind of a break. And the structure, it, the, the structure of the track is designed so that the listener will, uninterrupted, not notice what's going on. If they, so, I mean, you can listen to it for infinity and it still has a track structure. So it's a, something that's fascinated me for quite some time now. Well, you can carry that through, can't you? If you look at the work of J.S. Bach and Bach's rondos and they go round and round and round and then they join in with themselves and they continue. In fact, there was a book written uh, by Douglas Hofstadter called Godel Escher Bach. And in that, uh, Hofstadter discusses the rondos of Bach and how they go round in a circle and about the mathematics of Kurt Godel and how that's circular um, and the paintings of uh, the Belgian artist Escher and again you know Escher has these paintings were like the staircase that goes up forever yeah and again these are all themes of the eternal recurrence and the eternal return this is because we have something deep within us we have this knowledge that this is the case it's I think it's the great secret the greatest secret ever is that we we exist in a circular universe we live in a personal circular universe but the difference is people turn around to me and say would it be awful that I live my own life over and over again? But you don't. 
This is the thing. This is the thing that people miss about the hypothesis, which I call cheating the ferryman. You don't. It's the wonderful opportunity to be like Phil Connors in the movie Groundhog Day. What you do is your daemon knows what you did last time yep. and helps you live the perfect life. Now, funnily enough, I, my own radio station, I'll be interviewing Danny Rubin, who was the scriptwriter of Groundhog Day. Danny has given, get this, Danny has, written my, has given my book, Is There Life After Death, to most of his friends at Harvard. He's, he's a lecturer at Harvard University. And he, he recently emailed me again to say, I just love your theories because you've done the science of Groundhog Day. And he said, yeah. I never intended it to be anything deep and meaningful. But effectively, you know, you put the science behind it. Because if you think about it, if you look at that movie, Connor's the central character, lives the same day over and over again, and initially does all the negative bad things. But over a period of time, he starts to realize that he can do good for doing good's sake. Well, that's it. He learns from it. He learns from it, and he has karma. And what happens is, at the end, he lives the perfect life. And he's allowed to move on to the next day. Now, in my hypothesis, I'm suggesting this has a deeper truth. I think in my concept, the groundhog life or, you know, uh, the cheating the ferryman hypothesis, that we all have the opportunity to live the perfect life. This is going back. It's almost a playing around with the, with the, 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 the Hindu and Buddhist concept of reincarnation. It's literal reincarnation in your own body in your own life because if you think about it reincarnation as it is normally understood to be doesn't make sense if i live this life now and then i'm reborn as somebody else and i don't remember what i and nothing in me remembers what i did in my last life how can i ever better myself i can't because i don't remember you yeah. have to remember the impact of the things you did in order to put it right now the buddhists the Tibetan Buddhists have a concept called the bardo state. And the bardo state is existing between lives. And I think my cheating the ferryman is the equivalent of the Buddhist bardo state. They also have another concept called Kali Chakras, which are actual wheels like mandalas where you go round in a wheel and you go round again and again and again. This is a hidden secret that I'm now touching upon. And it, it impacts on virtually every single religious belief it impacts upon so many belief systems and it works and it makes rational sense because I'd like to know that maybe last time round I didn't write this book. This time round, my daemon, for want of a better term, manifested the migraine in my head to make me think about doing this. Yeah. Now, my favorite story of this, and this is really, really true. This is my own evidence of my own hypothesis and theory. Um, are you okay with this for me to explain something? Let's go for it. Okay. Way, way back in about 1987-88, um, being heavily into music, I, I used to collect Q magazine, the English music, British music magazine. Yeah. And they used to give free CDs. They probably still do in terms of, and it would be latest music releases. Back in 88, um, I bought a copy of the Q, it might have been 89, and I took it home. I was living in Colchester at the time with um, my previous my previous wife, common-law wife, and that's a better term. And I got home, and I played the CD. And the third or fourth track in the CD, as soon as it started playing, the back of my um, neck, hers on the back of my neck went up. I knew it. I knew the song. I knew, I, knew, I knew everything about it. I knew where it was going to go. I knew everything about it. 
And suddenly, something in my head, this is way before I wrote any of my books or anything, something in my head said, and I distinctly remember it saying funeral, funeral song. And this, it just was there in my head spontaneously, whether it was words or an instinct or whatever, I don't know. Right. Funeral song. After it was, when it was playing, I called Jenny in and I said, Jen, can we, can we change my, my will, please? because I want this song played at my death, at my funeral. And she said, for God's sake, what are you talking about? It's ridiculous. It's a happy song. It's not a funeral song. It's not anything. It's called, it was called Round of Blues by Sean Colvin, American singer-songwriter. Okay. And I said, I don't know why, but please. And we went out that Saturday and we amended my, um, my, my will. Time goes on and um, circumstances happen and I end up with my present wife. Penny. When Penny and I got together, one of the first things I said to her was, and this is, this is what, 16 years ago? Okay. And I said, when we make our will, we want to, I want to play you a record because I want it played at my funeral. And I thought to myself, why are, you, why are you so preoccupied even saying this now? And she said, what? And again, she was like, Jenny, she was confused about it. And I said, no, it's something that's very important. This must be played at my funeral. So we put it in my will. Story rolls forward to um, I'd written the first book uh, and I was in the process of getting a publishing deal for it. And I was working as a regional, the, the, the regional human resources manager for Nuffield Hospitals. And I was responsible for uh, um, all the human resources issues for, for about 10 or 12 hospitals across the north of England and Scotland. I used to do a lot of driving. And I had this, this lovely company car, a um, Mazda RX-8. Not that you're particularly interested in doing that, but the, the wonderful car, you know, rotary engine, went like, like crazy. Yeah. Used to drive like a madman. Um, and it was one evening. Now, a bit of a storyline here. Um, I'm a great music fan, and I have something called an Arcos. I've always had these Arcoses. They're kind of MP3 players. But they're super-duper MP3 players because they have huge memories. Um, and at that time, I had somewhere in the region of 16,000 separate tracks from my music collection downloaded onto this MP3 player. Okay. And whenever I was on the road, I'd have it on random play. So it was a 1 in 16,000 chance of any one track coming up. Yeah. I'm driving across the M62. I had a, a business meeting in Chester, and I was driving across from where I was then living in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. And I was driving across for a business meeting the next day. It was a fairly, it, it was in November, I think, November, December. And if you know the M62, it gets very high and you go across um, and you come down towards something called what's called Milne Row. And it, gets very, it can get very misty and foggy. And as I'm driving along, there's fog patches. And as I'm hitting the fog patches, the music player is playing. And for the first time ever in the years I'd been playing that MP3 player, Round of Blues comes on. And I went, oh, dear. Hang on a minute. This means something. And again, the hers went up on the back of my chest. Or back of my chest? <laughs> back of my head. <laughs> so then, for some reason, I found myself suddenly moving the car quickly into the inside lane. As I did so, the lorry in front of me was carrying a load of crash barriers. The crash barriers came off the back of the lorry and crashed into the middle lane of the motorway. Wow. It have hit my car. 
I was doing 60. I'd have been killed. The last thing that I remembered in my last run through what I call the Bonian IMAX, the run through life, was that. That was my death song. It was the last thing I heard. I then start living my life again, and my daemon spots in some way or knows that I have to be saved this time. So it puts in my mind, when I heard that song for the first time, this feeling and sensation that this song is to do with your death. I misinterpreted it as being my song for my funeral. But it knew, my daemon knew, that many years later, that song would come up and it would be the song that would be playing as I died. And by doing so, it made me turn off and turn into a different lane and save my life. That is the power of cheating the ferryman. That is how powerful it is. So you listen to your daemon. That is absolutely fascinating. It's, it still amazes me, that one. And since then, I've received so many letters from people around the world whose daemons have saved their lives. You know, in the daemon, I have example after example of this. Mm. So it, it, it is incredibly powerful as an explanator. When people read uh, It Is Their Life After Death, you know, it's now sold around 35,000 copies worldwide. It's been translated. I mean, I'm off to um, Zagreb in Croatia in November to do the book launch of the Croatian language version of the book. And it continues to sell. And it continues to sell because it resonates with people. This is why I have literally thousands of people on my forum and fa on Facebook. And it's because people read the book and they go, my God, this book has changed my life. Yeah, people can actually relate to it. Oh, yeah, because it does. It, it explains what I find amazing. Is I look back on it and I think, how the hell did I write that? And I really genuinely do. And since then, what I'm, ha what I'm finding now, all the books I now write, I don't believe in channeling because that's wrong. But mm. what I believe happens is my daemon guides me to the information I need. I mean, today, there's been a whole series of stuff today I've discovered about, um, about Hatha Yoga which I was never, ever aware of Hatha Yoga. Mm. And Hatha Yoga links into the Kundalini experience. And the Kundalini, as you probably know, is symbolized by a snake. Yes. Is I talking about DNA? DNA symbolizes a snake. Hatha Yoga believes that, the, that, that, that the, the Kundalini helps the embryo develop in the womb. It guides the development of the embryo. It's DNA. It's DNA. These ancient civilizations have not used the term DNA, but they know what the symbols mean. It reminds me a little bit of a film. I don't know if you've seen it. It was released, I think, December of last year called Another Earth, which uh, didn't get a huge mainstream release, but I think did quite well in Cannes. And mm -hmm. it was essentially the story of a girl who was um, in some way involved in an, in an accident or was participatory in an accident. And... Over the, the years that followed, she went to prison for whatever happened. And over the years that followed, she became quite introverted. And anyway, the long and the short of it is um, another, another Earth appeared in the sky. And it was this massive event worldwide. And it looked just like planet Earth. And everybody could see it day and night. And people got used to it over the years. And it was just another heavenly body or whatever. But... NASA, in their infinite wisdom, decided they were going to go and explore this. And eventually, it turned out to be a parallel universe or a parallel Earth. And they discovered that there were more and more of these all over the place. 
and in the movie she discovered inadvertently that she could control what happened or move between the different earths depending on what way her conscious state was and it just as you speak this movie just keeps coming back to me time and time again because when I was watching it it wasn't necessarily something that I picked up on but it's only now as you speak Anthony that I think back to that movie and I, I think I'm going to have to watch that again because there's, there's something in there there's something hidden there is there's something I, I deal with all the time in my books uh, Weltgeist world spirit and something else called Zeitgeist which is the, the kind of the, the, the inner belief systems of people I believe that what is happening now is that there is quickening of, of consciousness and what is happening is this quickening of consciousness is manifesting itself in the mass media this is why there are so many movies we have on my website on my forum cheatingtheferryman.com mm. there is a section called Itladian Mass Media or Itladian Books and Itladian Movies we've been collecting these for years there are so many of them it is disturbing how many of them there are some of them and they're all to do with uh, the Cheating the Ferryman hypothesis for instance Gra um, Groundhog Day we've already mentioned Vanilla Sky Tom Cruise yeah yeah um, on top of that you can then move on you've got Minority Report uh, you have uh, um, a series of Michael Gondry films like the uh, the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I always get the, the, the wrong way around that. No, that's that, the right one. Again, the idea of that. There is uh, an obscure German movie um, called Run Lola Run. I've seen it. Which is circular. There is a most amazing and probably the closest to my hypothesis and it's called um, Triangle, um, which was made, a British film that was made about three or four years ago, and it's about a group of people on an abandoned ship in, 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 in the ocean where they just find this ship. And again, you watch that and read my book. But on top of that, there's writers that are writing about this. I'm just going to interject there, Anthony, for a second, um, if you don't mind. There's just another instance of synchronicity there as we speak, uh, because I mentioned Another Earth, which I actually saw on a transatlantic flight, um, in December, whenever it was, I saw Run Lola Run on the same flight for the first time. Oh my God! Well, there you go. There you go. This, this is it. This, this, this is. We, we. I have a term for this. I call it synchronicity. Okay. Mm. It's synchronicity and serendipity. So it's it's fortuitous synchronicities. Again, on my forum and the people that are involved in my work, which are called Itladians, by the way, from the initials of my first book, Is There Life After Death? Yep. So if you look up Itladian or Itlad on the web, that's what you'll come across. These are the terms we use. The illusion we live within, it's called the Bohmian IMAX uh, or the BIMAX, which is in relation to uh, 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 an American physicist by the name of David Bohm which we won't have time to touch on upon now, but it, it, Bohm, David Bohm's ideas are very heavily influential upon myself. But the, 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 the synchronicities happen, and the synchronicities happen all the time. Now, on top of this, for instance, I always say to people, read my book, Is There Life After Death? Then, then watch the TV series um, Flash Forward. Then read a book called Replay. Also, if you watch the movie or read the book, The Time Traveller's Wife. Also, if you watch the film, um, um, what's the one where the guy keeps going back to his own past, Butterfly Effect. Oh, yeah, yeah. All these, all these films are at Ladian. Now, all these films and all these, these ideas are 
influence on the matrix of course the classic the wachowski brothers mm-hmm. and the, the nature of reality is being an illusion in fact there's a deja vu sensation isn't there, in the matrix with the cat That's where right. neo sees a cat go in front of him and he said i've seen the cat go in front of me twice and uh he's informed and he's told they're changing the, they're changing the matrix that's what a deja vu is. It's a change of the matrix. And Morpheus explains to him how this works. But all these things and all these books and all these novels are probably traceable back to one man, Philip K. Dick, the American science fiction author. And I say to people, have a bit of fun. Read Is There Life After Death? Then read two of Philip K. Dick's novels, Ubik and Vallis. It will blow your mind absolutely blow your mind this guy experienced the things i'm writing about in his life he wrote fiction based upon the experiences he had in his life Uh, in fact i'm under negotiations at the moment um, and it is possible i might be writing a a biography of philip k dick using my own itladian slant on this well that'd be Um, truly fascinating because philip k dick a lot of people may not be familiar with him, but so many of the movies and books that are in the public consciousness now and became so big over the years are based on short stories or novels by him. It's, it's absolutely incredible. He's part of the zeitgeist. He's part of this. He's part of it, lad. What you may or may not be aware of is I'm in regular contact now with Tessa Dick, who was um, Phil's uh, widow, and she was with him. Um, in the final years of his life, including she was a witness of what was called his theophany, which he called uh, 2374, when his daemon, again, my hypothesis, his daemon manifested in his life, and he realized he was a dual creature. He actually was what I call a dyad. That is a person who is immediately aware of the fact that they have a daemon, and the daemon absolutely manifests in their lives. Dyads um, are fascinating people, and I think under normal circumstances, there are dyads out there who know their dyads but won't talk about it, because it's what Blavatsky would have called the ascended masters. It's what the Buddhists call bodhisattvas. These are people who can come back and live their life again with full knowledge of the events of their life. Again, this goes back to mystical traditions. Um, so Philip K. Dick, I just think, is an intriguing guy, and at the moment, it looks like I've got the book deal to write this um, but that's not 100% certain yet uh, this is the first time I've told everybody about this so you've got an exclusive well we do and here's hoping <laughs> you have an exclusive here um, I had meant to be keeping this a little bit quiet but uh, this this is going to happen I've, all, I've been interviewed for um, the Philip K, there's a Philip K. Dick fanzine and uh, a friend of mine Nick Buchanan who um, is one of the writers on this has actually interviewed me for the Philip K. Dick fanzine um, on my particular angle on Philip K. Dick. The other thing is that people have pointed out to me that Philip K. Dick predicted me as well, which is another little weird thing here. Um, if you read Philip K. Dick's book, um, Counterclock World, mm-hmm. you will find that there is a character in Counterclock World who, predict, who comes up with um, a new explanation to what happens to human consciousness at the point of death. Philip K. Dick could have called this this person Joe Bloggs, Phil Brown, Andreas Bardwaj. He could have called him many things. He called him Anarch Peak. Wow. Now, wow. Now, you imagine if Philip K. Dick had some kind of recognition or some kind of awareness or in a future life he didn't, he hadn't died in 1983. Or it was 83, I think he died. Mm-hmm. And he had survived through to now and he'd come across my books in an alternate universe. 
and an, an alternate version of the Bimax where he survived and didn't have his stroke. And he saw one of my books on a bookshelf and he just had a glance glancing view of it and he just saw a peak. And he then goes back into his normal world and decides to write a book. And he has a character that does what I do. He couldn't quite remember what my second name was. He knew it was A and he knew it was Peak. And he calls me Anarch Peak. Anarch Anthony. I mean, it's pretty damn close. It's very close. And now, it's, it's not the most common name either. No, I don't believe that for one minute because uh, I don't. I find that hard to believe. But a lot of my fans and a lot of my readers take this as being significant. And now if it's the fact that I'm going to be writing what I hope is going to be the biography of the man, talking to a lot of the people he knew, that gets even weirder because suddenly there's going to be a book with that title Philip K. Dick by Anthony Peake. Now that is then very, very, very peculiar. It absolutely is. And for anybody who might be listening to this, Anthony, and they're thinking, well... The whole thing is a little bit peculiar, but they can in some way relate to it. And it's sparking something in them. And we've all been through that initial sparking process. And they're wondering, well, how can they access their inner demon? Is, is there a way to do that? It's an interesting one. I've, I've, I'm working with um, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, uh, psychotherapists to find ways and means of doing this. And in fact... There are psychotherapists in my circle who are applying the Damon Adelon dyad um, in their work, and they find it works. They find that, that you can hypnotize. For instance, in the book uh, It Lad, I mention the way in which certain you can go to certain levels of hypnotism. Um, and if you go down to certain levels, what happens is the everyday self disappears and you encounter another being. It's something that um, one very, very famous hypnotist, whose name again escapes me, called the hidden observer. It is the observer of everything. And hypnotists know they find this being when they hypnotize people. If this is an ability to actually communicate directly with the daemon, it could be fascinating. But to me, there's something quite intriguing about this, because I'm not necessarily sure that the daemons want to be discovered because it's not necessarily in their interests. In other words, they are doing a job. So in which case it could be that what I'm doing with my work is actually showing something that maybe doesn't want to be shown. Mm. In fact, I've long argued that this whole duality thing is one of the, again, one of the huge secrets of esoteric belief systems. If you look at the uh, Masonic beliefs and you look at theosophy and you look at a lot of the esoteric groups, they all teach the same thing. They all teach that there is this hidden inner self. Now, there are techniques you can use if you, you, if you go to many of these esoteric schools. They will teach you how to get, in, to get into your inner self. In fact, most religions, particularly Gnostic religions, are techniques to actually get in contact with your hidden self, to become one with the God inside, the God within. Because I argue that the daemon is in fact a manifestation of a term that people use called the Godhead. Yes. And God, the Godhead is, Bernard Haish, by the way, is the guy that was doing the work on um, uh, Zero Point Energy. And Bernard has written a book called The God Theory. And in this, he, he takes, do, do you know Bill, Bill Hicks? Yeah, of course, yeah. Okay. Do you know Bill Hicks' famous monologue about breaking news, a uh, young man in Texas on LSD mm -hmm. uh, discovers that we are all a light working at a slow vibration 
uh, and that we are all one entity ex ex um, experiencing itself subjectively. Yeah. How about a positive LSD story? That would be newsworthy, don't you think? Anybody think that just once to hear a positive LSD story? Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively there is no such thing as death life is only a dream and we are the imagination of ourselves here's Tom with the weather this is exactly where I'm taking a lot of my hypotheses now I believe that we are all one entity this entity manifests itself through the daemon. I term it the uber daemon. And I believe that effectively this is another of the great secrets. And Bernard Haish in his God Theory book writes about this. Also, a lot of people who are working with dimethyltryptamine are coming to this, this particular worldview. There is a guy I'm working with at the moment um, called Martin W. Ball, who's an anthropologist who has, has written various books on what he calls the entheological theory. Also people like um, uh, a guy called Orak, James Orak wrote a book uh, called Tryptamine Palace. And in this he discusses what he calls God G stroke D. The, all these people are coming to the conclusion that certain chemicals such as dimethyltryptamine and ayahuasca mm -hmm. are what's called entheogens. Entheogen literally means God within. They believe that by, by using these particular substances, you open up channels in the brain to manifest. And when you do trips in, with DMT and ayahuasca, this is where you go. And in fact, this is the model of my new book, because I'm saying that the pineal gland is the place where the uh, communication takes place. Um, and that you open up the channels of communication either doing entheogens. But I'm also working, intriguingly enough, with two Austrians, um, Dr. Engelbert Winkler and Dr. Dirk Prokol. Winkler is a consultant psychologist and Prokol is a consultant neurologist. And they have invented something called a lucid light device, the LL device. Yes, I've heard of this. Right. We, we brought it across. They, I did um, a workshop in London at Earl's Court uh, about a month ago for the Mind, Body and Spirit Festival. And we had uh, an LL stimulator with us. We call it Lucia. And the cues we had to use this machine were phenomenal. People, we, we were fully booked for people wanting to use this machine. And what kind of this, experience do people have? Everybody has an experience. I myself, I'll explain my experience and then you can, you can take your own opinions on it. Uh, what happened was, um, there's a writer called Evelyn Elasa Valerano who writes on near-death experience, works with a guy called Kenneth Ring, if anybody knows Kenneth Ring's work in near-death experience circles. And Evelyn is a great fan of my work as I'm a fan of hers and she lives in Geneva and she contacted me around about... Uh, three or four years ago, and she said, there's a contact, a friend of mine called Dr. Engelbert Winkler who has read your book, Is the Life After Death? And he's absolutely amazed by it. And he has had a near-death experience when he was a child. And a lot of what you say rings true for him. And she said, he'd like to meet you. 
And then she contacts me again and she said, there's more to this. She said, um, can you get over next weekend? Because Engelbert is coming over from Austria with an associate of his, neurologist uh, Dirk Prokol, because they have invented something called the Lucid Light device, the LL device, and they want you to test it out. Now, interestingly enough, I arranged to go over there, um, and I also arranged for Dr. Arthur Funkhauser, the deja vu expert that I mentioned at the start of the interview. Uh, Art came over from Bern, and we all met in Geneva, and I was given the opportunity to test this device. Now, what it is, it is a, a, a light device. Um, it's a single stroboscopic light surrounded by other types of light with different intensities of white light and they work on a computer program now I know people will say oh there's lots of other machines out there that do this maybe there are but they haven't been designed by a consultant neurologist who knows what they're doing yeah. in other words other people have come across these things by chance these guys have built this machine up from pure neurology and how light is encoded in the brain so they built it completely the other way you know, so I'm aware of a lot of these other machines, um, but, but this is different, okay? I then sit in front of the machine, and it gets switched on, and the lights start, and I'm sitting there thinking, nothing's going to happen. You know, and after about 10 minutes, still nothing, and I think, it's going to be embarrassing here. I'm going to have to pretend that something happened, and then suddenly something did, and it is probably singularly the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in my life. There was an explosion of blue light that went right across my field of vision, like somebody had thrown some blue paint across my closed eyes. Mm. Then there was an explosion of red light from the other side, and they started to mingle in the middle like a mandala, and they started to spin in a vortex. And they, I felt as if I was being traveling down this vortex of blue and red light. Near-death experience, the tunnel experience, the, the pure white light of consciousness that the Buddhists talk about. Uh -huh. I was experiencing it. I'm sucked down this thing, and suddenly my eyes start to vibrate in my head. I start to panic a bit, and they say, no, it's your, light, your eyes encoding the light. Don't worry, it's a neurological effect. And I said, have you changed the colors? And they said, no. I haven't changed the colors, they're still white. And I opened my eyesight and I could see they were still white. Then in my periphery vision, like I was describing scotomas with migraine, there was something in my extreme right periphery vision that I was moving. I said, and I have a look at this. And they said, yes, you can, because your eyes have encoded the light. Turn away and have a look. So I turn away and I look down and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. My chair and me were floating above a planet. We were probably 30 miles above the surface of a planet. This planet consisted of a black and white checkerboard pattern. I could see to the edge of the planet. I could see the curvature of the planet. And the curvature of the planet had a shimmering blue light going along it. All the black bits and white bits were being linked by these little filaments of light. Little blue filaments. These are, I've now discovered are called the light of the Earth. Carlos Castaneda talks about it. Yes. I've seen the light of the, the lights of the earth. I lost my nerve. And I said, can you switch it off? I cannot believe what's just happened to me. They switch the machine off and it all goes. I explained to them what happened. And as I'm doing so, something very weird happened. Mm -hmm. I started feeling a vibration in the center of my forehead. 
It was like a small creature, like a snake or a worm, was moving in the center of my forehead and was stretching my skin. I actually put my hand up to feel if there was anything moving there, and there wasn't. Something had been activated by that light device. That night, I had the most amazing dreams I've ever had. Since then, whenever I discuss this, and I discussed it yesterday in an interview, and it happened, it's happening now, the vibrations start. My pineal gland has been opened. My Anya Chakra has been opened. Now, I'm now doing the research on this. The guys, the, the guys from Austria, they took this machine over to, to Larsa in Tibet with Professor uh, Haraldson of the University of Iceland. And they had people of the Bon tradition, which is shamanic Buddhism, sit in front of these machines. Within minutes, all of them were seeing mandalas. They, were, they said it takes years of technique. This machine generates this within a couple of minutes. I believe what it's doing is it's generating endogenous dimethyltryptamine in the pineal gland. Mm -hmm. It's making the pineal gland excrete DMT. We know that DMT is found in the blood. We know it's been found in the gut of the body. It's, it's a chemical the body generates. It's a natural chemical. We generate it. They've also found that there are certain receptors in the brain called the trace amine something receptors. I don't remember the second day. These are receptor sites in the synapses of the brain. Receptor sites are like locks, and only certain keys can open them. The only key that can open these are tryptamines, particularly dimethyltryptamine. This is intriguing stuff. This, I believe, this machine engenders a, di a DMT trip, an ayahuasca trip. Everybody that has used this machine, and I mean everybody, has a sensation. Most people see mandalas and they see lights. If they are given the more powerful 15 minutes, they have out-of-the-body experiences. They go somewhere else, as I did. This machine is gonna is incredible, absolutely incredible. I'm absolutely intrigued by this because if ever there was a time where people's consciousness needed to open and the pineal gland needed to be activated, it's now with people, I suppose, doing the opposite inadvertently with the food they're ingesting and the environments that they're, uh, they're, they're living in now. I mean, people have calcified pineal yes. glands as a result of, I don't know, fluoride in water, which we spoke about a couple of episodes on this show ago. And uh, this is utterly fascinating and so timely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that amazes me. And I, I argue that this is because my Damon saved me that time in the car crash. And I know it sounds vain and people who know me know I'm not like this. But th there is something in this, the, the way in which people are taking my ideas and running with them. Mm -hmm. There is something specifically happening now that I'm part of, whether I'm central to it's another matter, but I'm part of this. And I'm making it happen. I'm linking people with other people who are talking. For instance, when we brought the light device over to London uh, a few months ago, and I did a talk in London, we had a light device with us then. I introduced the guys for the light machine to a guy called Dr. Andreas Mavromatis. Hmm. Andreas Mavromatis is the world's leading expert on a phenomenon known as hypno hypnagogia. Hypnagogia is the, the, that sensation just before you go to sleep when you see images and faces and everything else. He had never heard of the light machine. The light machine's other name is the hypnagogic light machine. 
I had Mavromatis test the machine and he was stunned by what happened to him. This is intriguingly powerful stuff. I've also introduced Mavromatis to Gary Lackman, the ex, as I was talking to you earlier on about the, the, the ex-lead guitarist of Blondie. Yeah. As Lackman has written about Mavromatis. We're all linking together on this. This is, this is, this is extremely powerful. Now, it could be that the reason why this is happening is that if, imagine a scenario that the world is about to end in 10 years' time, okay. for argument's sake, everybody who's living now will probably be involved in that event. All their daemons will be involved in that event, mm. which means that every single human being that's alive now that might get wiped out in whatever happens, their daemons know. And their daemons are going, hold on, guys, hold on. Something awful's going to happen. We all know it's going to happen. We need to do something now to stop it happening. I, I don't agree with 2012. But what I do agree with, if you apply my theory, that 70% of human beings are living their lives again in this three-dimensional recreation of reality and interfacing with other human beings who are existing within this matrix, we all have daemons who know that something terrible is going to happen. So this could quite easily explain the, uh, well, I was going to say the imperceptible, but it's far from imperceptible, the quickening, awakening of consciousness that I'm certainly noticing, and I know a lot of other people are too. Yeah, but the sociologist in me turns around and says, well, every generation feels that there's something special about their generation. You know, for instance, there was the generation of, uh, was it 1834, the great disappointment when they thought something traumatic or great was going to happen and Armageddon yeah. was going to take place. So I don't necessarily take truck with that. But all I do say is that it does seem that in my lifetime, the amount of people who are now being attracted to these things, serious scientists, you know, people think that I'm some kind of new age nutter or some kind of woo-woo. Believe me, I'm not. I'm linking with some very, very seriously academic people. I mean, I've been invited to lecture at one of Scotland's top universities. Their philosophy departments have invited me to talk about the philosophical aspects of my work and quantum physics. This is a university. I mean, I'm invited to serious people there. And the reason could be that there is something in the air. As I said, the quickening, maybe. And maybe people are misinterpreting the 2012 because they're just misinterpreting it. They feel there's something and they have to manifest it in some way. So they've taken the Mayan thing and they've pulled that together. Yeah. You know, I, I know there's a certain degree of overlap with what I talk about and David Wilcock. But the differences between me and David Wilcock is I don't think I'm the reincarnation of Edgar Cayce. Mm -hmm. I don't believe I'm channeling information from the planet Tharg. I'm nobody. I'm just somebody that's putting the information together and I'm trying to do it scientifically. But I think people like David Wilcock, I think people like David Icke, I think David, a lot of the stuff David does is intriguing. A lot of his other stuff, 10% of it to me is barking mad. But a lot of the other stuff that he deals with has integrity and has power. Uh -huh. and in fact, David and I have been in contact over this and, and these issues and we've swapped emails on. There is something happening what is worrying is that if people like me are considered to be the same as the woo-woos and the gurus, I can be undermined very quickly. And the people who want to keep with the materialist, reductionist worldview will use that to undermine me and my ideas and discredit me. It's happening now. People are trying to discredit me out there on the web. They're trying to discredit me on, on various places, such as reviews of my books on Amazon. This is something that's happening 
I cannot allow this to happen because I'm not a woo-woo. And anybody that reads my books will realize yeah. that I'm not. You know, what I, what I do is, is grounded in pure science, absolute pure science. It's leading edge, edge stuff. Some of it is hypothetical, but it's based upon observed phenomenon. In other words, I'm not saying that, you know, my spirit guide has told me this and come out with some kind of nonsense about we've all got to love each other. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. What I do is say, look, look at the evidence yourself. I say to my readers, go away, read my books, check the references, come back to me. If there's something I've said that is wrong, look at it. The whole hypothesis is iterative. It's developing. It doesn't belong to me anymore. It lad doesn't belong to me. There's other people writing books based upon the subject at the moment. You know, it is a groundswell movement. And that's the beauty of it, because my truck with so many people um, now, far be it from me to judge anyone, and I'm not doing that, but it really frustrates me, even in day to day life, that people don't question. People need to question. So it's entirely healthy from your point of view, of course, if people question your work or if people question what it is I do or why I do this radio show or anything like that by all means bring it on because it's only through the process of questioning that people can form their own opinions and actually get off the fence for a change. Exactly. I mean, what, I'm, what, what the difference between me and a lot of people is I haven't created it, lad. In other words, I, I use the, the term in my second book. I said I'm like Schliemann when he discovered Troy. I started digging in a place and suddenly I started finding things and suddenly they started to come together. Mm. It was like a proper scientific investigation. I didn't think, oh, I want to create a theory about what happens to life, uh, consciousness at the point of death or linking DNA with the zero point field. This is what other people do. They have a, a thing and then they go and prove it by pulling together disparate pieces of information. That's not what I've done. I've literally just started off on a road and these are the information I found. At the same time, there are things in my ideas that change. I mean, for instance, my idea of, of, of this collective consciousness is something that a lot of people have been banging on to me for years saying, Tony, you're missing the point. There's a collective consciousness out there. For a long time, I was very much based in the idea that consciousness is literally based in the brain, that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of brain uh, uh, things. I don't believe that now. I think the brain now is a, is a tuner for a field of information mm -hmm. that's probably the zero point field that's out there that we attune into, which explains why certain things can happen, why we can possibly sometimes know things at distance, these kind of things. Yeah. So this is trying to structure a really structured, logical worldview that makes sense. But if it sounds like nonsense, and I've put something in, for instance, recently I had a very, very bad review in the Society for Psychical Research Journal about um, my book, um, The Out-of-Body Experience, because a lot of people don't like that book because they think I'm making out the out-of-body experience is brain-generated. They're missing the point. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you go somewhere else internally. That's why I call it the intrasomatic experience. Yeah. But I've been criticized because, there, like a technical point, I say in the book that the pineal gland, um, as the, the embryo develops, the pineal gland is located at the back of the throat and it moves back as the embryo develops and it starts doing that at the 49th day of gestation, which is when the Buddhists say that the, that the, the spirit enters the, enters the embryo. Apparently, technically, I've been told I'm wrong by, by a professor of uh, biology who wrote the review and I've confused apparently that with another, another part of the body. I'm checking this up now to see if I'm right or wrong. 
But by the way, may I acknowledge that that theory and idea is put forward by an associate of mine, a very brilliant guy called Beach Barrett, who's an American guy who's doing research into the pineal gland and is feeding me with information from America. So, you know, I'm happy to review that. And if that is wrong, that's fine. You know, I've got it wrong. You know, I'm only human. I'm not an academic. I don't have opportunities for people to be pointing me to specific academic papers because I'm not in an academic environment. Uh-huh. My errors are through ignorance. That's all. And if it's an error through ignorance, I will correct it. And I think people can't ask for a whole lot more than that, Anthony. No, well, I hope not. I hope not. But um, the thing is that people, I am much misinterpreted by a lot of people. People who know me, know me personally, know exactly what bees are in my bonnet. And people misunderstand. They think that I've been accused, amazing, I've been accused of being uh, an arch-materialist reductionist and a supporter of Richard Dawkins. And I, I rate Richard Dawkins in many ways. I think a lot of the stuff he says is incredibly sensible. But at the same token, I'm profoundly popular with mediums. In fact, I've done a talk and been invited back to do a talk at one of the main medium training centers in, in Stansted Mount Fitchett in Essex. You know, so other people will consider me to be some kind of new age crazy. So how can I be both a materialist reductionist? I've also been accused of being a scientist, which is somebody who believes in science so much that I've made it a religion. How can I be that? and a woo-woo new age flake at the same time. Well, there's a, a distinct contradiction there. Yeah, it means I'm building bridges. And as I've used the analogy, the problem is with building bridges that there's an awful lot of vested interests both sides who don't want you to be building bridges because they want people to believe that messages are channeled from the planet Thog. They have big businesses that yeah. make a lot of money out of these things. They have training courses on it. They don't want people like me to be coming along and saying the out-of-the-body experience is actually brain-generated or it's to do with dimethyltryptamine in the brain. They don't want to hear this. But if they listen to what I was saying, they'd realize that what I'm saying is actually supporting their experiences. And they can use my material to actually give their things scientific validity, which they haven't got at the moment. Absolutely. So, Anthony, where is your work taking you now? You're, you, you mentioned you're writing a new book. And when can we expect to, well, I suppose, read the book or find out what's going to be in the book or what's on the agenda for you? I know you're really busy with a lot of uh, traveling and public speaking and that kind of thing as well. So what's well, on the agenda? Uh, OK, I've been asked to write an article for, for the UK magazine 14 Times, which is a big breakthrough. So I'll be writing that in the next few weeks. Um, as I said, I've got the, the potential 99% certitude of a book uh, written on uh, about uh, Philip K. Dick. Um, I've also, the, the book I'm writing at the moment, which at the moment is called The Gateway to Infinity, mm-hmm. uh, which will be published by Watkins Books, who published the Out of the Body Experience. That will probably be out next May. Although at the moment, I'm, I've got around about 140,000 words written for a book that's only 80,000. So I've got a little bit of a problem of how I reduce that down. <laughs> Fun times ahead then. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot There's a lot on at the moment. Um, I'm doing, we're working on an event in Liverpool next year, probably in February or March. And any people over in Ireland, particularly who want to get over, just fly over on EasyJet or something or Ryanair over to Liverpool, we're going to have a two-day event and we're going to have a Lucid Light device there with us where people can use for free. Um, So, you know, we don't charge for this thing. You know, people can use it and then people can buy it, but you can only buy it if you're actually fully trained 
on using the machine and you're going to be using it in a specific way because they're quite expensive mm-hmm. but you need to be fully trained because they are so powerful they can't be used by anybody because they're dang- you know they could be dangerous if they're not used in the right way yeah um what else um I'm getting more and more on the lecture circuit. I've also been offered a research fellowship at the Gordino Bruno University by a guy called Irvin Laszlo, Professor Laszlo, um, who is an expert on the zero-point field in the Akashic Record. Uh, Irvin Laszlo has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize twice. Um, so he's, he's a heavy hitter, and he's massive, massively interested in what I'm doing. How I take that research fellowship forward at the moment, I'm not sure, but I'm probably going to be taking it along the pineal gland route because the ultimate idea is to probably end up with a PhD in this subject and actually do it properly academically and do the research in an academic environment because an awful lot of my stuff we could try and prove or try and test out in an academic environment. And if there's anybody out there who's interested in working with me on this, all the better. You know, if you are in an academic environment and you have the facilities whereby this could be tested out, please do it. You know, I've got somebody at the moment writing a PhD thesis back on, on um, the implications of some of my work. So, you know, there are people out there academically who are working on it. So please, if I can help in any way or you can help, that's that's great. But just get involved. Look me up on Facebook. Link in with me on Facebook. Get involved in the Cheating the Ferryman forum. Also, please, if you've read my books, please write reviews of it on, on Amazon. Amazon USA, Amazon UK, Amazon Canada. I need the reviews on there. Even if you hate it, you know, give it one star if you hate it, but just give us the reviews. Give me the feedback. That's what I need. Absolutely. And your website, Anthony? Website is www.anthonypeak.com. That's Anthony with an H and Peak, P-E-A-K-E.com. Also, uh, the, the forum is www.cheatingtheferryman.com. That's cheatingtheferryman.com. And if you want to test out any of my other stuff as well, just Google me or go onto YouTube and just look up Anthony Peak. There's tons of stuff on there. There's interviews. There's TV interviews. There's, there's videos. Tons of it. Um, in fact, you could probably spend a lifetime just actually going through it all. Well, um, we have, we've, it. Give we've infinite opinion. lifetimes to do that. You probably do. Yeah, absolutely. That's why, you know, I feel that, um, you know, as I'm getting older now, you know, my 60th birthday is now on the, the horizon. And I feel, you know, I've only got a limited amount of time to make this happen in this run of the Bonian IMAX. Mm-hmm. Because the argument I've always used is I couldn't have started any earlier because I wouldn't have had the web to be able to interface with people. I wouldn't have had the facilities I have, like Skype and all, all the other things that I can now use. 20, 30 years ago, I wouldn't have had these facilities. So even if I live my life again, I can still only writing the, start writing the book at the same time. Well, there we go. Another example of synchronicity. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Anthony Peak. it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you on Alchemy Radio. Hopefully you'll come back and give us regular updates and we can speak in more depth about uh, your new book before it comes out and indeed some of your past books, because I think it's something that will certainly interest a huge number of listeners out there. Uh, Thank you once again for joining me. It's been absolutely great. Thanks, John. Thanks very much. Alchemy Radio.
Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?